welcome back to STEM Fatale, your Women in Science History podcast. I am Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm Emma Dilemma. Uh, how are you doing, Emma? I'm doing good, you know, finishing everything up. It's all coming along slowly but surely. Yeah, you'll soon be on the other side. Um, I watched Always Be My Maybe last night while I did data analysis. Nice. And it was very cute. Is it? What's it's that? a rom-com on Netflix. It's a new movie. Good plug. It was just released. Good, good plug. All <laughs> yeah. Right. All I right. don't know why. I just like, it was very cute and I'm just recommending it. That sounds good. Yeah. You can check that out. Yeah. All right. We are going to leap in. We're done. We've done. We've done. We've done the good banter. Yeah, our the pre our fifteen seconds of banter that we always are really bad at. (laughs) So we're doing a bit of a heavy hitter today, which I already kind of told Emma about. Hit me with it. I will. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So uncomfortable. All right. Uh, it's not a question that I'm going to ask you, but oh. it's going to be a, a more of a call and response. Oh, God. Okay. All right. You ready? No. I say silent. You say what? Silent night? <laughs> what? <laughs> I say night. No. No. Uh, si- spring. <laughs> ah, silent spring. Yeah. A silent spring. night. I was <laughs> like, who could this be? I'm telling the story of Mrs. Claus. <laughs> uh, Dr. Kevorkian. <laughs> the lady version? Yeah, so we're That's talking about joke. <laughs> Rachel Carson today. Rachel? Ra- Rachel. Rachel. <laughs> Rachel. I thought you were saying Rachel. I thought you were talking about Girl, Rachel. And I was like, us? Rachel what? Like, Rachel Carson. Yeah. We're going to move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so today we're going to talk about Rachel Carlson. Carson. Carson. Why do I keep saying Carlson? Today we're going to talk about Rachel Carson. Yay! Yay! I'm so excited. I love her. Uh, so what do you know about Rachel Carson? Um, she figured out, well, I mean, I don't know if she figured it out, but she definitely showed the world that DDT was causing birds, like bird eggshells (laughs) to be weakened, right? Yes. Yeah. And that it was just causing like kind of all these broader ecological effects because bird populations were declining i know that and i know she was an environmentalist true sort yeah true true and she wrote the book silent spring which i haven't read but you know i was gonna read it before this and i have it on my uh kindle oh nice and i just haven't really read anything since i've defended (laughs) yeah it's hard (laughs) i'm just in that kind of phase of Playing Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, and, you need some kind of like mind-numbing stuff for a little yeah, bit. I eating think eating bad cereal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So soon, I'll I'll be back on the reading yeah. train. I think <laughs> the reading train, <laughs> the reading Sounds rainbow. Yeah. yeah. All right, so let's just dive in. Okay. So, uh, Rachel Carson was born on May twenty seventh, nineteen oh seven, on a family farm in Springdale, Pennsylvania. Her farm was just north of Pittsburgh along the Allegheny River. And she was the daughter of Maria Frazier and Robert Carson, who was an insurance salesman. Her childhood was filled with exploring her family's 
65 acre farm. Wow. Um, and she began writing stories about animals as a child. She really loved to read. Um, and her mom really kind of encouraged this. That's and great. she actually got her first story published at the age of 10. Oh my gosh. In the St. Nicholas magazine. Huh. And her favorite literature often involved the natural world, especially the ocean. Nice. Aw. The ocean is majestic. The ocean is majestic. I agree. So then during high school, she played uh, sports like field hockey and basketball and then graduated from high school in 1925 at the top of her class. Nice. She went to the Pennsylvania College for Women, which is now Chatham University. Oh, yeah. And here, apparently she was a bit of a loner. It just like was kind of a throwaway line. Like she <laughs> continued to be a loner. I was like, okay. Oh. <laughs> That's so weird. Like... I she wonder if she had diaries or something. Yeah, I, always I don't know. wonder how people know these things, yeah. you know. Um, and when she went to college, she started off as an English major because she loved to write, mm. but later switched to biology. Cool. And after her switch, she continued to work uh, for her school newspaper and literary magazine, so she still kind of blended uh, her biology desires with writing. Nice. Then she was admitted to go to Johns Hopkins University for grad school. Wow. But was forced to, I wasn't quite sure about this. She was forced to remain at Pennsylvania College due to financial difficulties. Huh. So I think she was trying to maybe graduate early or transfer and start grad school. And for some reason, based on financial difficulties, she couldn't really do that. Weird. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. So, but she graduated the following year, magna cum laude, in 19. 19- 29, and then took a summer course at the Marine Biological Laboratory at Woods Hole. Nice. Carson then continued on. Uh, she went to grad school in zoology and genetics at John Hopkins mm. in the fall of 1929. And after her first year in grad school, Carson switched to being a part-time student and working as an assistant in Raymond Pearl's lab working on rats and Drosophila to earn tuition money. So I guess back in the day, there wasn't really... Like research assistants, or it seems like a weird thing to be ha- a halftime student, yeah, and then be working halftime as a research assistant versus what we have is like a half appointment as a research assistant, and you're a full time student. Yeah, I guess, but the student part is so weird. Yeah. Anyway, like you're a student, who but you're just not taking class free, basically. Yeah. 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 Um, so she followed then a strange trajectory, which I really, uh, felt akin to. Oh. She tried to work on a variety of different systems. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. and kind of reached a bunch of dead ends. So she yeah. worked on pit vipers. Oh. For a little oh bit gosh. of time. And then squirrels. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what the, like, <laughs> connecting well, thread do was. do pit vipers ever eat squirrels? Are there pit vipers in the U.S.? Um, I don't know that much about snakes. I think they get into, like, Central America, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's tropical... There aren't tropical squirrels, are there? No. I don't know. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, I don't think there's... I'm, like, trying to think of any range overlap. (laughs) So, then she finally completed a dissertation project on the development of fish organs. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's and, another big leap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And received her master's in zoology in June 1932. Cool. Okay. You know, after the pit vipers and the squirrels. 
I wonder what she was trying to study about them. I mean, the pit viper is like, maybe she was just like, I don't think so. Like, yeah, they're pretty deadly. So she, for this, she like worked on the development of like the embryology of like certain organs oh. and how they changed okay. across the development of fish is what she ended up doing. So I wonder if she was just going to be working on like the organs, but yeah. in pit vipers or the organs, but in squirrels. Yeah. I'm not sure. All trajectory, all, not trajectory, all speculation. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So although she had intended to go into a PhD program, she was forced to leave Johns Hopkins for a full-time teaching position to support her family financially at this point. Her mm-hmm. father then suddenly died in 1935, and Carson had to support her aging mother. Oh. Um, and so with the help of her undergraduate biology mentor, uh, Mary Scott Skinker, she got a temporary position with the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries. Oh, cool. Uh, writing for a series of weekly educational broadcasts called Romance Under the Waters. <laughs> oh, strange. Right. Romance it? Under the Waters. Yeah. I guess that's just fish sex. It was, it was just about like anything marine. Oh. I don't know why it was called Romance Under the Waters. Yeah. Okay. And this series consisted of 52 seven-minute programs focusing on aquatic life and intended to generate public interest in fish biology and the work of the Bureau. So the Bureau, the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries is now U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Yeah. So she got this, like, awesome part-time gig. And she also started submitting articles on marine life in the Chesapeake Bay to local newspapers and magazines during this time. Okay. Sounds like an early version of Blue Planet, kind of. (laughs) Yeah. But, like, weird little seven-minute snippets. Yeah. Oh, seven minutes. That's right. Seven minutes in heaven. No. (laughs) I guess the ocean is akin to heaven for some people. Yeah. So she romanced things under the water. So then Carson's supervisor at the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries secured her a full-time position uh, because of her excellent work. Nice. On these little short videos. Yeah. And she had to take this, like, civil service exam to get a full-time position at as a, U, at a U.S. kind of government job. Okay. Uh, where she outscored all the other applicants and was hired as a junior aquatic biologist at the F- Bureau of Fisheries. Okay. Uh, she was the second woman hired for a full-time professional position at the Bureau. Wow. That's pretty cool. So as this junior aquatic biologist, Carson's responsibilities were to analyze and report field data on fish populations and to write literature for the public to kind of let yeah. them know what the status of fisheries were in the United States. Yeah. She also wrote a consistent number of articles for the Baltimore Sun and other newspapers during this time. However, in 1937, her older sister died, leaving her as the sole breadwinner for both her mother and her two nieces. Oh my gosh. So in July 1937... The Atlantic Monthly accepted her essay called Under Sea, which was a vivid uh, narrative of the journey along the ocean floor. Oh, okay. So this marked a significant turning point in Carson's career. And after this, Simon & Schuster, which is this like publishing house, uh, they were impressed by her article and suggested that she expand it into a book. So the ensuing book that she wrote was entitled Under the Sea Wind, Huh. which was published in 1941. Okay. And although it received excellent reviews, it sold rather poorly. Yeah, people just aren't interested in... Yeah, the sea 
Science. <laughs> However, she continued to succeed in her article writing, so this okay, didn't really stop good. her. Yeah. Then around 1945, Carson wanted to leave the Bureau of Fisheries. Oh. Uh, but in the wake of World War II and the Manhattan Project, there were few jobs for naturalists, and most uh, science money was going to these like technical fields to yeah. make new chemicals to do physics stuff. Go to the moon. Go to the moon. Space. There yeah. was very little for understanding yeah. basic biology, and especially like interactions between organisms and stuff like that. Hey, still true. Still true. <laughs> So in the mid nineteen in mid nineteen forty five, Carson discovered the subject of DDT, right, which was a new pesticide that was called the insect bomb after the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which I would say is not That's great. Bad, like it's not great. You don't want to be like a nuclear bomb, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's a weird comparison. Yeah, I guess. Well, it's also it makes me so sad too to think of it as just a generalist insect bomb. Yeah, yeah. But it's also seems re- like offensive, offensive, yeah. in that you're comparing like the comparison of like the oh, bomb yeah. of Hiroshima versus this bomb for insects. And yeah. You're like, anyways, it seems not great. Uh, I just wrote here, not great, guys. <laughs> not great, guys. So, however, DDT at this time was only beginning to undergo tests for environmental health and safety, even though they were using it all over the place. Yeah. And although Carson was interested in DDT from the very beginning, no editors really found this subject appealing at this time. Mm -hmm. So, Carson remained at now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. They changed their name after World War II. And she quickly rose up the ranks and became chief editor of publications. So by 1948, she began working on material for her second book and decided to transition to writing full-time. Wow. So Oxford University Press published her next book called The Sea Around Us. Oh, wow. And nine of these chapters were serially published in The New Yorker in 1951, and the chapter called A Birth of an Island won the American Association for the Advancement of Science says George Westinghouse Science Writing Prize. So like this big prize... By the AAAS for yeah. science writing. And The Sea Around Us was on the New York Times bestseller list for 86 weeks. Oh so almost gosh. two years. That's great. And won the 1952 National Book Award for nonfiction. I wonder why that book got so much more press or, or interest from people. Than the previous one? Yeah. I don't know. One, so this one... Maybe just the timing, like, people were less concerned with, you know, are we all going to die today? (laughs) Yeah, it could be timing, but it could also be, I think, Under the Sea Wind was more um, about the ocean floor and, Mm -hmm. like, maybe more geography, and the other one was more ecological. Hmm. Not positive. I think that's true. So... She also got the John Burroughs Medal for this, which is for an wow. award for writing in the field of natural history. Yeah. And she also received two honorary doctorates from what? this book. Honorary doctorates are so crazy yeah. to me. Like, it's just, how is that a thing? I know, I know. Not that people don't deserve it, but it's just like, okay, I guess. So I like, guess that's pretty much a dissertation. I know, yeah. It's like you've done the work in some arena that... Could earn you a doctorate from a university, but it's always funny that 
all the universities are like, here, yeah, have, have it. it. Like, it's not one. It's like, it's not your alma mater or mm-hmm. something. It's, it's like just everybody. everyone. Everybody <laughs> wants to give it to you. <laughs> it took me a second. Uh, so in her acceptance speech for the National Book Award, she outlined her beliefs about the public's interest in science. Ooh. She said... Many people have commented with surprise on the fact that a work of science should have a large popular sale. But this notion that science is something that belongs in a separate compartment of its own, apart from everyday life, is one that I should like to challenge. Science is part of the reality of living. It is the what, the how, and the why of everything in our experience. Yeah. It is impossible to understand man without understanding his environment and the forces that have molded him physically and mentally. Wow. She's so ahead of her time. I know. (laughs) I feel like just now, like, everyone in academia is like, oh, I guess we should, uh, like, talk to other people because it seems like nobody's understanding what we're yeah, doing. we shouldn't be just in our, like, iron Little corner pillar. What is it called? Ivory tower. Ivory tower. Iron <laughs> pillar. Pillar. What? Whatever. Our steel, uh, Shaft. our steel poles. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, we can't do this. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> So, The Sea Around Us actually led to the republication of Under the Sea Wind, Mm -hmm. uh, which itself became a bestseller at this point. Oh, good. Okay. So, at this point, due to financial security, she was able to give up her job at U.S. Fish and Wildlife and focus on writing full-time. Wow. So, people at this point kind of fell in love with Carson. She was inundated with speaking engagements and fan mail. She also sold film rights to The Sea Around Us. Oh, And when she received the script for the movie, she was very unhappy with the script because she said it was untrue to the book and scientifically embarrassing. Oh. (laughs) She also discovered that she didn't have any control over the script content. That sucks. So despite Carson's objections to some of the inconsistencies, the writer, director, and uh, producer Erwin Allen uh, proceeded to make a successful documentary, and he actually won the 1952 Academy Awards for a Best Documentary Feature. That's Hollywood for you. But apparently he did. He had fixed some of the major problems that Carson had okay. seen in the script. That's good. But she was so embittered by the experience that yeah. she never sold her film rights again. Yeah, that sometimes it can go well, but I don't know how people negotiate things successfully you know like yeah, you have i want to have a stake in this and things have to all align you yeah. have to really have a director that's willing to work with you i guess yeah. um so then in 1953 carson spent the summer in southport island maine there dorothy freeman introduced herself to carson as her neighbor and this was the beginning of an extremely close friendship that lasted the rest mm-hmm. of carson's life yeah they spent time together during the summers, and they kept in close contact through approximately 900 letters <gasps> over the next 12 years. Whoa. And the extent of their relationship was very guarded. Freeman shared parts of Carson's letters with her husband oh, uh, to help him understand their relationship, okay. but she also kept much of their correspondence secret from him. Mm, okay. And before Carson's death, both Carson and Freeman destroyed hundreds of their letters to <gasps> each other. Whoa. Scandalous. Uh, I know. It's like, I mean, it's very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder what was in those letters. I know. I'm so intrigued. But Freeman's granddaughters published the surviving letters between them. Oh, that's really uh, cool. In 1995, 
in a book called Always Rachel, The Letters of Rachel Carson and Dorothy Freeman, An Intimate Portrait of a Remarkable Friendship. Aw, that's... Yeah. Yeah. So, in 1955, then, Carson completed the third volume of her Sea Trilogy, <laughs> That's called <laughs> The Edge of the Sea. I didn't even know these were... I like that it's a Sea Trilogy. I guess a I sea just trilogy? like it's a yeah. Sea Trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is what it said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so The Edge of the Sea focused on coastal ecosystems ah, along the eastern nice. seaboard primarily, but also in general. Yeah. And this book also appeared in the New York Times in two installments, or in the New Yorker in okay. two installments. And the Edge of the Sea received favorable reviews, was not, a, but was not as enthusiastically bought as the sea around us because no one likes marshes. That's <laughs> my interpretation. Huh? Maybe people were just like, "Eh, I think I get it." Yeah, I think you people know, are I don't less. Know. Um, because you can go out and kind of see the coast. Yeah, like you could like snorkel and see some um, of what the coast has to right. offer tide pools people like aren't as excited about it yeah. as the the real mystery of like the deeper deeper ocean, ocean yeah. but coastal ecosystems people are wrong are, yeah. they're wrong <laughs> they're the best <laughs> all right so after the sea around us she started working with the nature conservancy on an environmentally themed book project Ooh. but this work was put on hold oh wow the nature conservancy is that old Wait, yeah, what year was it? 55 wow, okay. or something like that. Okay. I didn't know that. I think it's pretty old. Yeah. So she started working with the Nature Conservancy on an environmentally themed book project. But this work was put on hold when tragedy struck again. And this time one of her nieces, uh, who she had raised from a child because her sister had died. Yeah. Uh, so oh, her niece no. died at the age of 31. Wow. Leaving... Uh, her five-year-old son, Roger. Oh, my gosh. So then Carson adopted Roger and Aww. moved to Silver Springs, Maryland, to take care of her new son. Yeah. Yeah. She's a trooper. She got yeah. a lot done, considering she was, like, sole carer yeah. of a lot of different Just people. accidental mom again I know. and again. <laughs> I know. Later on in 1957, Carson began closely following federal proposals for widespread pesticide spraying. For instance, the USDA had planned to eradicate fire ants using chlorinated hydrocarbons and organophosphates. Those are just pesticides. I didn't know the fire ant problem was a thing then. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, wait, but there's native fire ants. Yeah, I think this was probably native fire ants. And the dangers of pesticide overuse became the focus of the rest of Carson's professional life. Wow. And um and people like hate her for this. Like there are, are oh, people are so divided on her yeah. about her anti-pesticide stance. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, you're probably going to get there. I will, but I'm I will, just I will. so interested. Yeah. <laughs> so although Carson had been concerned about the use of synthetic pesticides since the mid 1940s, many of which had been developed through military funding during uh, World War II. Yeah. A lot of these had been attempts to produce some type of, a lot, especially in World War I, they were they had tried various things for chemical warfare right. and things that didn't work as well on humans or things that weren't as developed during the time of World War I that worked on insects, they then turned to use as pesticides. So a lot of these were originally supposed to be... That's so crazy. For... Yeah 
human chemical warfare. Ugh. However, the inciting incident that made her really delve into these pesticides was the 1975 gypsy moth eradication. Oh. So this eradication program involved aerial spray, aerially spraying pesticides, oh. including DDT, onto private land without the consent of those <gasps> landowners. Hell no. That's crazy. Yeah. So landowners on Long Island sued to have the spraying stopped. However, their case, uh, they lost their case. What? But the Supreme Court actually granted, from that point forward, granted petitioners the right to gain injunctions against potentially harmful environmental harms in the future. Yeah. And so this was an important step into later successful, like, environmental actions to have these injunctions. I mean, that's insane. Like, you're not just spraying one animal. You're spraying humans. Mm -hmm. You're spraying... Like, small mammals, other insects. Yeah. Like, things that ecosystems need. I mean, it's insane to yeah. do that. Well, and, and, and what Silent Spring, moths? they actually... I think... I forget what... Gypsy moths, I think, are for, like, corn or, like, some agricultural oh, 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 pest. Yeah, okay, okay. Maybe cotton. I'm not sure what it yeah. is. But, yeah. It, Carson, in her book, she talks a bit about that... Like, if the forefathers potentially had known about these, like, chemicals you could spray into the air, mm-hmm. there might be something. There's no, like, people are safe from their air being polluted. Yeah. Or anything like that in the Constitution, because that wasn't even something to think about, that people should have rights yeah. to not have to breathe in those and types of things. this was before the Environmental Protection Agency yes. existed? Okay. Yes. Yeah. And we'll get to that, too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, um, yeah, so they lost this case, but it pr- provided yeah. f- good cool. future directions. Cool. So then the Audubon Naturalist Society actually recruited Carson to research the government's spraying practices, mm. which thus began her research on pesticides. Yeah. So Carson got a book deal to co-write this kind of environmental book that would become Silent Spring. Yeah. With Newsweek scientist journalist Edwin Diamond, but it later became a solo project for a variety of reasons. Like the New Yorker wanted her to do another piece for them, and so she decided to just write the book by herself. Oh my but it ended up that Diamond, this person who was supposed to co-write the book with her, became one of her harshest critics for really Silent Spring. I would guess an ego, like a like he got bumped off the project. Mm. I don't know. I don't know either. I just know it's a very controversial book. Yeah. But I've never quite understood why. Yeah. Yeah. So while working on Silent Spring, Carson pulled together all of her contacts that she had kind of formed. Government scientists who she knew gave her confidential information. Wow. Uh, a group of biodynamic agriculture organic gardeners. So like I think or this group of organic gardeners that had formed a coalition and their advisor uh, had all filed a suit of lo- a suite of lawsuits against the U.S. government for various wow. things, including I would imagine like pesticide use that got onto their farms and yeah. stuff like that. And they provided Carson with a goldmine of information in the form of their trial transcripts, all the information from their actual lawsuits. That's insane. So there was she was not the only person that was criticizing the use of pesticides at this point. And I think the USDA got wind of her writing this book. 
Uh-oh. And so in 1959, in response to criticism, the USDA made a public service film entitled Fire Ant on Trial. Huh. Which Carson then described as flagrant propaganda, ignoring <laughs> the dangers of pesticides. Yeah. And I will post this because I found Ooh. it. Ooh. I've only watched the beginning of it, but it looks Is it insane? like crazy propaganda. Oh my God. That's crazy. Um, yeah, you'll have to watch, watch it. That. Yeah, yeah, I'll post it. It's pretty remarkable. I mean, I know that even native fire ants. I don't know what they're like here anymore because mm-hmm. they're pretty. Their populations have been kind of decimated by right, invasive, invasive. Yeah, but I know they can be big pests mm-hmm. in um, in farming and yeah. and various types of agriculture. So. You know, it's hard. Like, I understand we need food, and these things are trying to eat our food, and it's such an easy way to get mm-hmm. rid of them is through pesticides, but... Yeah. Dang. Dang. I'm excited to watch that. Yeah. So, okay, where am I? So, she then wrote an article in the Washington Post attributing the uh, bird declines that you you could see around you at that point to pesticide overuse. Right. So also in 1959 was the year of the great cranberry scandal. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I've never heard of it. (laughs) Oh gosh. I think about it every night (laughs) as I go to sleep. Plagues me. So in 1957 to 1959 crops of the U S of U S cranberries were found to have high levels of the carcinogenic herbicide. Mm. Um, I'm not going to pronounce the name. It doesn't matter. It's a cancerous herbicide. Yeah. And this halted the sale of all cranberries for like a long period of time. I can't even remember the last time I ate a cranberry. Had cranberry juice? Are cranberries not as popular as they once were? Um, Like were cranberries really like a staple at that (laughs) point? I think of like cranberry juice... And, like, seasonally cranberries. I don't know. Couldn't tell you. I couldn't and I won't. Yeah. You don't have to have all the answers. I I definitely. these thoughts out there. I definitely don't. (laughs) All right. So, Carson attended the FDA hearings about pesticide regulations in response to the great cranberry debacle. (laughs) um, But left disheartened by the aggressive tactics of the chemical industry representatives. Okay. Um, Yeah, and this really disheartened her. Carson was also at this time interacting with medical researchers at the National Cancer Institute who classified many uh, pesticides as carcinogenic. And so she did more uh, kind of got down with the research on that. Yeah. Got down with the research on that. (laughs) Uh, Carson, alongside her research assistant, Jean Davis and the NIH library librarian Dorothy Algier, I think they both they all kind of searched through the records and found evidence supporting the connection between pesticides and cancer, which also then went into her book. Yeah. So by 1960, Carson had more than enough research material and was rapidly kind of writing Silent Spring. Yeah. She had hundreds of incidents of the negative effects of pesticides on human health as well as on environmental health. And ironically, as she was finishing up her final chapters on the link between pesticides and cancer, she discovered cysts in her left breast. Oh. Uh, and by December, the tumor was malignant and her cancer had metastasized. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Which means that the cancer yeah. had gone to other areas in the body. Ugh. 
Carson's illness slowed down these final revisions. Oh, man. Uh, into 1961 and 1962. And during this time, she had to, hi- she felt like she had to hide her illness because she feared that pesticide companies would actually use this against her and say that she was biased and untrustworthy. Oh, because she, she had, had cancer. cancer. Okay. Yeah. So that's like a terrible that she had to like hide it for fear that people wouldn't yeah. take her seriously. And that, like, the facts she had found wouldn't be taken seriously because, what, you have a stake in it, I guess? I guess, but, I mean, everyone should have a stake in this. Yeah, everybody does, It's, like, about public health. So, Silent Spring, which is Carson's best-known book, was published on September 27th, 1962. Wow. And the title originally came from her chapter on birds... But publishers felt that it would be a good metaphor for the entire book. Yeah. A bleak future for the whole natural world. This book described the harmful effects of pesticides on the environment and human health. Specifically, she focused on the fact that pesticides generally were not actually targeting pests. They, in fact, harmed a variety of organisms, including humans. Mm -hmm. And she says in the book that pesticides should really be called biocides Mm -hmm. because they'd kill life. Yeah. Relatively indiscriminately. Yeah. And one of the most well-known parts of Silent Spring focuses on DDT, as you kind of mentioned in the intro. Um, And other people had raised concern about DDT, but her combination of scientific knowledge and poetic writing helped these concerns reach a broad audience Mm -hmm. and helped focus them on DDT. And so I'm not going to get too much into the story of DDT, but I'll, I'll tell you like kind of a synopsis of why I think this was like a gripping story. Yeah. So DDT is a pesticide that's lipophilic, which means that it dissolves into fats. And so it can get stored in the body. Right. Of whatever organism. And DDT leaches into aquatic ecosystems and then can get eaten by like filter feeders, such as crustaceans and zooplankton. And so as higher trophic levels eat these lower trophic levels that have DDT stored in their fat, the concentration of DDT increases as the trophic levels increase. And this right. is called bioaccumulation. So you get higher trophic levels have much higher concentrations of these pesticides. Mm-hmm. Um, and DDT is also resistant to metabolism. So it's accrued, but you can't really get rid of it. Yeah. And DDT is toxic to fish, crayfish, shrimp, daphnia. Yeah. All of these. Um, And many birds of prey eat mostly these organisms. And so DDT can bioaccumulate and cause, they found that the eggshells of these birds to become much thinner, Mm -hmm. which increases the mortality of these birds. And so this was having huge effects on populations of bald eagle, brown pelican, peregrine falcon, uh, and osprey. So this was kind of a whole ecosystem level effect where DDT was getting into the water and affecting each of these levels. And then especially you could see it in these birds and their population declines. Also in Silent Spring, she discussed details in four chapters of how pesticides had poisoned humans, including via cancer and other illnesses. Um, And Carson predicted that increased pesticide resistance due to overuse of these pesticides would become a really big problem if we kept overusing pesticides. Mm -hmm. And she also discussed how these weakened ecosystems would lead to invasive species. So she had a lot of forethought in, like, the long-term effects that these pesticides could have. And the book closes by calling for a more biotic approach to pests. 
by using other organisms and the natural ecology of these organisms to maintain lower pest abundances. So they knew before they published this book that it was going to be very controversial. Uh, So in order to mitigate this criticism, they got scientists to review relevant chapters and sent copies to other supporters early. So pretty much all of these chapters had been vetted by outside scientists in that field. That's great. Um, And as soon as Silent Spring was published, the chemical industry strongly opposed it, as was probably predicted. For instance, Velsicol Chemical Corporation, they threatened to sue the publishing house that was uh, publishing Silent Spring. They also threatened to sue Audubon and The New Yorker if they didn't cease to publish Carson's book and chapters. Did she call them out specifically? Like, um, what grounds do they have to sue unless they're being I think she mentioned specifically some of yeah. the pesticides that they were the exclusive makers uh, of. Oh, okay. Yeah. Probably being like, this is libel. Yeah. But it's but, not. Yeah. Uh, however, Carson and colleagues had done so much extensive vetting of the book that all of the, the, the publishers yeah. and the New Yorker all felt confident that everything in it was accurate. And so they just went ahead. So they yeah. weren't phased by the... Chemical companies. Right. That's so that was a really smart way to do it. Yeah. So now here I just have like fun quotes okay, of people cool. <laughs> at the time and what they said oh, about Rachel Carson oh and about the book. I just have a couple. I'm sure. I mean, I've heard some from relatives on Facebook. Oh, God. People are still mad <laughs> at Silent Spring and Rachel Carson. Uh, like, it's crazy. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So, okay. Oh, okay. These are the people who made Old Spice. So, a biochemist named Robert White Stevens, Uh who worked for American Cyanamide, which (laughs) is now the maker of Old Spice. Oh, okay. He said, quote, if man were to follow the teachings of Miss Carson, we would return to the Dark Ages, and the insects and diseases and vermin would once again inherit the Earth. (sighs) Okay. Yes. That is what she's saying. Uh. And then the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, of Ezra Taft Benson, wrote a letter to former President Eisenhower, where he concluded that because Carson was unmarried, despite being physically attractive, <gasps> she was probably a communist. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know she what can't the, get a husband. I don't know what the logical steps are. From... Therefore, she's not trustworthy. Yeah. Like, she's why so doesn't she want to settle down? But she's not married. Don't trust her. That's so crazy. That's <laughs> psycho. Psycho level. Okay. So, um, of course, people were also misquoting her and what her book was actually saying. And I think this is probably where some of the controversy yeah. comes in today. They th- argued that she said that she wanted the total outright ban of all pesticides. Instead... What her book actually said was that she was urging for minimum use of these pesticides right. and only using them when necessary to minimize the risk of insects developing resistance as well as to minimize the negative environmental and human health effects. Uh, seems logical. <laughs> yeah. So we were just, at the time, we were just willy-nilly using pesticides and things yeah. were getting resistant and it wasn't actually necessarily, more pesticides weren't making problem go away right yeah um so she was just saying rein it back in only use it when we need to and use other methods so that we aren't you know causing human health and other environmental disasters that we can't then take back oh my gosh so i think that's one of the things where people think she is against pesticides no 
pesticides are good in lots of different cases when you need them, when there aren't alternatives. Yeah, or, like, maybe further research Mm -hmm. on pesticides so we know their health effects or environmental effects before we spray them all willy-nilly. Exactly. So, yeah, I think people people try to make it black and white where, like, she was for completely against pesticides. It's like, no, everything's more gray. Yeah, people don't understand nuance when it comes Mm -hmm. to science, even though that's so critical to understanding science. Exactly. It's pretty sad. So luckily, the pesticides company, like all of these pesticide companies and chemical companies, their campaigns against Carson actually backfired because it just increased the public awareness of the dangers of pesticides. So they were trying to make like, Carson's a liar, Carson's a liar, she's crazy, she's hysterical. Um, and it just got brought people's attention to the fact that she had written this book and that these were all these claims about yeah. the bad uh, effects of pesticides. Jeez. So additionally, the academic community as a whole completely almost backed her book scientific claims. Good. She had most of the scientific yeah. community on her side. And CBS Reports did a TV special entitled The Silent Spring of Rachel Carson in April 3rd, 19... 19- 60. I just have 196, but I'm guessing it's 1960-something. Yeah. Where Carson... <laughs> they went back in We're time. Way back in the day. Uh, and in this, Carson appeared composed and the opposite of a hysterical alarmist, as she was often <laughs> called. Um, and this broadcast reached between 10 and 15 million people. Wow. And mostly the public completely supported her. Good. After this. And it spurred Congress to review the dangers of pesticides and to release a public report of the president's uh, science advisory committee. So people really got up in arms about this pesticide and the government had to respond. Here's a question. Yeah. If a man had written this book, would the reaction have been the same? Like, what do you think? Um, I don't think they would call him hysterical. Yeah. Or care if he's married or not. No, yeah, I think the yeah. criticisms would be very different in their tactics. And they would be but there would still scientific, be, I think. Like, they would only be about the science. Yeah, it could be. There, there would still be a huge amount of backlash from chemical companies. Yeah. But... I feel like the it would way be that intellectual they, backlash instead uh-huh. of the personal attacks on her, yeah, yeah. for being an unmarried, I don't know, sexy communist. Head. I can't say that's true, but that's just what I. No, I, I. A lot of this is clearly they wouldn't say this about a man. There would, but I do believe that it would have still received quite a bit of backlash. Yeah, yeah. But it would have been very different. So this report that the Science Advisory Committee made was the first ever investigation into the public health effects of pesticides. Wow. And most of the public... insane. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, and this, like, this book had really revved up the public. Yeah. And Carson Good. actually testified before the Science Advisory Committee... And the committee reported its findings on May 15th, 1963, which supported most of Carson's claims. So they did an independent investigation. Um, And although Carson was receiving many speaking invitations at this time, she was unable to accept most of them. Her cancer had outpaced her treatments at that point. And she was still, um, but she was still trying to speak on these topics whenever she was able to. Yeah. In 1963, she also received the Audubon Medal, 
the Cullum Geographical Medal from the American Geographic Society and was oh. abduct- inducted. Abducted. Not abducted. <laughs> she was <By> abducted. <laughs> Uh, we weren't ready for her. Uh, and she was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Okay. Wow. That's good. Yeah. Glad that people took her side eventually. Like yeah. And within her lifetime, yeah. like, I think real, it said, like, right. within the year, pretty much the general consensus and public consensus was on her side. That's great. So, also, during this time, due to the complications of her weakened immune system and her uh, various cancer treatments, Rachel Carson died of a heart attack Aww. on April 14th, 1964, in her Aww. home in Silver Spring, Maryland. So it got published in 1962, and she died right after. Oh, my gosh. And she had a lot of – there's a very various things that posthumously have come out, um, certain bits of her writings that she hadn't completed – but there was a lot of stuff that she was planning on writing yeah. before. That's so Silent Spring, kind of uh, in a broader context, is widely credited for helping to launch the environmental movement. Mm-hmm. So according to environmental engineer and Carson scholar uh, Patricia Hines, Silent Spring altered the balance of power in the world. No one since would be able to sell pollution as a necessary underside of progress so easily nice. or uncritically. Yeah. Um, and her most direct legacy has been the campaign for the ban of DDT in the U.S., yeah. the most kind of tangible. In 1970, uh, 1967, the Environmental Defense Fund, which is a big group of lawyers, mm-hmm. was formed to bring lawsuits against the government to establish a citizen's right to the to a clean environment. Very cool. And that was mostly in direct response to her book, Silent Spring. Wow. By 1972, the Environmental Defense Fund and other activist groups had succeeded in phasing out DDT use in the U.S. Yeah. So within 10 years, I mean, 10 years is a long freaking time, but they did get it completely eliminated. And the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency by the Nixon administration in 1970 uh, was formed to address another concern that Carson brought to light in Silent Spring. So up to this point, the USDA was responsible for both promoting the agricultural industry and regulating pesticide use for uh, the agricultural industry. Yeah, those and are Carson, kind of conflicting. <laughs> yeah, Carson had brought up in her book that this was a conflict of interest. Yeah. And based on that, Nixon created the Environmental Protection oh, Agency. Oh, I never knew that. That's interesting. So she also had a lot of posthumous awards yeah. that I'm not going to get too into. She has two research vessels that oh have been named gosh. after her. That's cool. Um, she's gotten many awards. There are many buildings and nature areas also yeah. named after her. Uh, and in 1980, she was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom wow. by Jimmy Carter. Uh, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom is given to those who have made an especially merit an especially meritorious contribution to the security or nation's interests of the United States, world peace, cultural or other significance, public or private endeavors. So, yeah. And that's the story of Rachel Carson. That's amazing. I didn't know that. um, I mean, I knew that book was pretty famous Mm -hmm. and a lot of people know about it, but I didn't know it caused so many rippling effects yeah. so directly which yeah. is really cool yeah for yeah. sure it had huge uh impacts yeah. 
on I, the public. And I didn't, I guess I knew about kind of the effects of Silent Spring on the public, but I didn't know about all the other books she had read. Yeah, I didn't like know most, about that Like, she's all. a marine biologist by training. Yeah. Uh, and mostly the books that she had written were on the ocean, yeah. which I, like, now really want to go read, especially the coastal yeah. one, because, like, you know, right you know how I do you know about <laughs> this coastal stuff. That's really cool. But yeah, so. That's amazing. Still, uh, I feel like every time we research a big hitter, heavy hitter, it's like, oh, everybody knows this one thing about them. Yeah. But, but like, they, they did so much. Yeah. Or they had, like, just the, these other parts of their life that you never know about or could predict or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Aw, she's amazing. Yeah. Work, 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 work. This is our women who work section. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we give shout outs to badass ladies making history to di- to dirstery. <laughs> I don't know. That's not like to dirty history. <laughs> to dirstery. Dur- dur- yeah, today. Um, <laughs> I was just trying to throw a little, <laughs> like, uh, uh, something fresh. Yeah, change it up a little bit to make it totally nonsensical, I guess. <laughs> okay, so first shout out. So I got three shout outs to try to make them quick. I don't know what's wrong with me right now. I haven't (laughs) talked to anyone in days. Okay. So first shout out goes to uh, Jess Wade, who we've talked about before on the podcast. But she got an award this week from the motherfucking Queen of England (laughs) for her work writing Wikipedia pages for women and minorities in science. And it's just pretty cool. The award is called the most excellent order of the British Empire. That is the best. Which is like... I saw that last imagine. night, yeah. and I was very sad for some. I'm just like emotional right now. Were you just like, I want that, or well, like? No, I was just. I like turned to Andres and I was like, people are nice sometimes. <laughs> well, we just watched a um, like East Germany movie about spying and the oh, Stasi, oh, oh, oh. and okay. so it was like pretty depressing. Yeah, and then I oh, saw it was it. just so good and. And yeah, yeah. this was just like so nice and positive, yeah. and, like people being recognized for that. Yeah, was, like people are nice sometimes. Yeah, it's a British order of chivalry. Isn't yeah, that crazy. Yes. Like it's so fancy and cool. Anyway, oh. so shout out, shout out to her. again to Jess Wade. Um, okay, and you can like she's all over the place now, and everywhere we've talked about her, yeah. tweet about her a lot. So look her up if you don't know what she's up to. Um. Okay, second shout out. Yeah. <laughs> Am I going too rapid fire? No, I love okay. it. I'm in it. Second shout out this week goes to uh, Shinju Wei, who, with Rasmus Nielsen at UC mm-hmm. Berkeley, determined that a mutation in a gene that makes some people resistant to HIV uh-huh. also reduces lifespan or might reduce lifespan. Oh. So, like... Uh, the CCR5 gene, maybe you've heard of it. it codes- Is that the one that's in, like, some northern po- European population? Or is that a different um, thing? It, the gene is in everybody. Okay. But, the, but certain mutations are pre- more prevalent in Europe. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's what we're... Yeah. Um, where it, the gene codes for receptor proteins on immune cells. Gotcha. And, you know, usually receptor proteins on immune cells are used to identify, like, pathogens mm-hmm. and destroy them. But HIV has evolved to use those receptors and, and uses them to enter the cell. It gotcha. binds to them to enter uh, T cells and destroy them. Yeah. 
but there are people with mutations in the gene that don't produce those receptors. Oh, so they can't bind? Yeah, so HIV, mm. so they're completely resistant to HIV. Very cool. But, um, you know, there's kind of this puzzle of, like, why isn't everyone just resistant? You know, yeah. why hasn't this mutation spread? Mm-hmm. I mean, HIV can be, like, a long-term disease. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why yeah. mutation might not be selected for. But it seems to be, um, but they found in this study that it might reduce, uh, they studied over 400,000 British people where it's present, the mutation is present in about 11% of the British population and found that it, the mutation is associated with slightly reduced longevity. So, gotcha. Yeah. Little trade-off. Yeah. And, you know, like, and I found out about this paper by reading an article where they cited the paper. It was about the guy who CRISPR'd those babies. Uh-huh. And in, he, in China? And he gave them this mutation that would make them resistant to HIV. Mm-hmm. And, the, and so part of the paper I was reading was like, you know, we don't know all the effects of this mutation. Like, it seems like it reduces longevity. It uh-huh. might have and implications for their immune systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And anyway, that guy, what he did was completely unethical. Yeah. But this oh, is just, yeah. Another kind of piece of that puzzle. Then my last shout out goes to Olga Troyanskaya, who is the deputy director for genomics at the Flatiron Institute Center for Computational Biology in New York City. Nice. And a per- she's also a professor of computer science at Princeton. So like, badass. doing good. Yeah, doing good things. Um, and she and another PI, Robert Darnell, collaborated in leading a team of researchers to develop a machine learning model that could predict how any sequence in the genome might influence gene expression. How? I mean, I didn't what? research the model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Basically, like, they can look at genomes and look at traits Mm -hmm. and look at, use this model to predict how mutations in the genome might actually influence gene expression. So whether or not a protein is coded for. Yeah. Crazy. It's way over my head, basically. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So they use the model to study the genomes of children with autism. And they compared their genomes to their siblings' genomes that don't have autism Mm -hmm. and their parents' genomes who also don't have autism. Like, there are some cases where parents and children both have autism, Mm -hmm. but they only looked at families where there was one child, where it would be a new mutation, basically. Gotcha. And um, from this, like, using their model, they discovered... Uh, quite a few mutations in non-coding regions of the genome that are associated with autism. Okay. And they specifically found genes involved in, like, different neural expression and stuff, which will be interesting for people to research Mm -hmm. from from here on. Yeah. The more causal mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it's interesting if it's a non-coding, so it's just autism might be controlled more by things not being expressed versus yeah, a mutation in the actual yeah. coding. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, so those are my three shout-outs. I liked it. <laughs> bang, bang, bang. Yeah, nice. 
Yeah. That's, and that's the podcast, I uh, guess. <laughs> yeah, I saw I saw the, the Jess Wade thing, which is cool on Twitter. Yeah, that's so exciting. I'm glad that she's getting a lot of recognition for all that work. Because mm-hmm. that's so a much lot work. of work to write, to research people and write new Wikipedia pages oh. almost every day. Is there a Wikipedia page about Jess Wade? <gasps> I actually, I think there is. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> I feel like I saw that today, but... Don't quote me on okay. that. Okay. Yeah, that'd be cool. I will because I'll keep it in the pod. Yeah. But. Well, yeah. Anyone, you can technically quote me yeah. on that, but yeah. All right. Well, that was our podcast. Yeah. Uh, I hope you liked it. If you did, we really appreciate if you can take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. Yeah. Um, preferably a nice one because <laughs> we read them and we appreciate yeah. them a lot. And it helps people find the podcast, figure out if they want to listen to it. Right. Uh, get us kind of higher up on whatever science charts there are so that people can see us. Yeah. Um, so we really, really appreciate that. And uh, we'll also send you a sticker if you want one. You just have to actually send us an email yeah, or a tweet to know. say that you wrote us yeah. a review. And um, I want to give a shout out to Caitlin Friesen for all the art Yeah. that I've started. I've been very behind lately and actually posting them on um, Twitter. So That's I've been okay. doing batches of yeah. just like three. Yeah. Um, so you'll get another batch of three on Wednesday. Cool. And then also to Artichoke for our awesome theme music about Yay. Mary Annie. So thanks everybody and go stimulate yourself. Because <laughs> I want to do it again. Okay. Go, go stimulate. <laughs> no. Okay. And right. go, go stimulate yourself. yourself. <laughs> Circa 1820, she ran a fossil store.